Welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast for and about marginalised groups. Episodes cover a wide range of topics from race and sexuality to mental health issues and substance abuse. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Kyle Legal. Kyle is an artist, filmmaker, writer, director, spoken word poet and dancer from Butte Town in Cardiff, a place known for its multicultural roots. Kyle also designs and makes his own graffiti clothing line. He's written, directed, designed and animated four 2D short films for Channel 4 and S4C. He also makes music videos and cover art for local bands. In 2015, Kyle became the first artist in residence for National Theatre Wales. As a director, he worked on productions of Storm 1, 2 and 3 in 2018 and 2019, collaborating with theatre directors Mike Brooks and Mike Pearson. Kyle is also a panel member for the organisation and continues to facilitate workshops with many different communities, artists, performers and practitioners. And these involve performance, making music, creative writing and creating scenery. In 2017, Kyle wrote, designed and directed his own play, R-A-T-S, or RATS, which stands for Rose Against the System. This was staged in the Roof Void at Wales Millennium Centre. Kyle has also actively contributed to multi-platform artworks for an exhibition that explores the legacy of the Cardiff 1919 race riots. Pre-COVID-19, Kyle attended various national festivals with his hip-hop pop-up studio, Higher Graphics, which is a festival store where he would showcase his graffiti on clothing, spray painting in front of an audience in a rat costume and delivering freestyle poetry and dance. So, cheers for coming on, Kyle. So, you've got a pretty uh, eclectic list of skills there, but how would you describe yourself, sort of, first and foremost, in a nutshell? Um, I, I'm just a creative person, really. Um, I, I, I sort of... Um, I'm a talented sort of artist, painter-wise, so that's what my, my, how I started off with traditional sort of drawing and things, and I, I've been able to branch out and... Um, I suppose get other different practices um, just to, to re- realistically um, to keep money coming in and also just to be that creative, I suppose. So I, I sort of, yeah, I tried to get involved in everything. Yeah. And do you think, you know, is do you see yourself as an artist, like first and foremost? Is that who you are at your core? or like a creative person, a creative practitioner, or, or is it just all interchangeable for you? I suppose the, the easiest is description is an artist. Yeah, I, I've sort of been calling myself an artist since I was about eight years old. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, people sort of recognise that within me and it, it's sort of become, I suppose, um, my lifestyle and everything, yeah, like a typical artist. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so have you kept, like, do you still have the drawings from when you were an eight-year-old? Have you kept sort of doodles and things like that? Sure. Um, I've got like a lot of my school books. Um, I started off drawing Rocky and Jesus at the religious schools. Yeah. <laughs> um, when when the teachers left um, and I left the high school, they they actually kept my my books. So um, sort of being sort of collecting my, my drawings from a child. My mother gave me back a load of my books that she collected. And um, yeah, so <laughs> collecting from a young age. So it's been sort of in your life forever, really. Yeah, I, it was sort of instilled to, in me, if you like, because people could spot. I was spotting that I was good artist as a, a young, a, a young kid. Um, they just sort of was telling me I was an artist, and I, yeah, I sort of took took hold of that, if you like, and um, was showing off wherever I went with uh, my my pens. I could draw a horse at the yeah. age of six. Like I, I drew it for. Uh, I think Neil Callahan, one of the Labour MPs, came to my <laughs> nuns and uh, they said, he's an artist. I said, go on and draw me something. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. So 
I mean, I guess at some point you realise you could make money from doing this and you've been working professionally field for a long time. I'm going to go back to the year 2000, because I was doing a little bit of research online. So your um, Channel 4 commissioned to develop a three-minute uh, 2D animation called These Dish of the Day, which I was just uh, watching on your Vimeo channel a couple of days ago. So this is like delivered as a recipe for uh, the peas and rice told by your grandfather. That's right, yeah. And yes, kind of got your graffiti, graffiti art sort of stamp on it in, in the, um, the animation. My mother taught me to cook. She told me she was never going to leave me to be as useless as my father. This is the dish for the day. And this recipe is for pork with red beans and fried rice. First, we cut the pork into cubes. Chop the onions nice and fine and chop four chili peppers. The reason for taking out the seeds is to save you from having to sit on a bucket of cold water when you go to the it's toilet. It's a nice touch, sort of using like a family member's voice. It, is that something, you know, do you often draw on your personal experiences within your work as either an inspiration, you know, or to kind of tell the story? Uh, definitely. Um, and my grandfather was one of the, the people I sort of have always listened to and um, like his poetry and things like that. So I, I think he features in three of my first animations. Mm. And um, yeah, it was, he was just his, his dialogue that he'd, he'd been coming out with since I was a kid. I've always sort of been inspired by. And um, he'd always give me, oh, you should make a film about this. You should have a topic about this. And uh, so like when I got a, a chance to actually make um, my animation, I, I think like a it was more like around like the creature comforts idea. Mm. Sort of go into the community and, and find a realistic uh, recipe. And um, it was either going to be my mother or my father I was going to uh, record. But at the time, they were, uh, Channel 4 was looking for um, a slot in between uh, England and uh, Jamaica playing cricket. Yeah. A, a little slot of animation. And um, that was like my first big commission where I just left university and I applied for the um, yeah the commission within the artistry of, um, of of the UK. They was looking for people specific, specifically with um, uh, Jamaican background. Yeah. So I sort of bombarded them with ideas um, through a fax machine, hmm. and uh, the woman at Channel Four said, "Okay, you got the, the commission. Just stop sending us ideas." <laughs> oh, fantastic! So you know, fast forward a, a little bit. To- closer to now so you completed the longest graphic mural in britain so is it 524 feet oh yeah <laughs> um telling the the history of tiger bay how did this project come about and to what extent do you think your own like heritage and um, where you're from influence the work that you want to create uh, it, it came about by the the council um redeveloping the area uh, they were sort of knocking down the, the shops and rebuilding them over a four-year period mm. and they had like um like this massive space to say and they put hoardings around there that they was planning on keeping there for the next five years so it was a, of a, a brilliant opportunity to sort of um put a mural up that said something and um i think within the idea it was about um me research on not just me my friends and i uh researching uh the history of the the bay and being out on the streets and being able to take local people's uh, photographs and history and be yeah. able to paint them on the spot uh, and sort of getting access to to that immediate sort of um yeah street history if you like and what i was able to do is paint or narrow the the whole history of the land within to four, within to 40 murals and um yeah, so it sort of depicted um, the bay from the dinosaur age, really, right up through Neolithic to um, uh, the first Sinuits and, and Celts, uh, when right for the Romans, uh, Normans, and, and you realise what, what sort of uh, magnific- magnificent sort of uh, history we've had just on this period, on this land, like uh, with the pirates. I think we had Owen Glendower burning the Cardiff Castle and it, it describes him running to the sea so all this was on the mural like um, uh, like the, the literally the mile of the space we are of, as Butown what has gone on in that in that short on this short period of time so like we had 
riots um, on there. And uh, yeah, so like the the, uh, the land sort of inspired me to paint it, if you like, and it, it sort of made me uh, a Bhutan historian in itself, like the, the projects I do about my community sort of always about educating and informing and um it's about educating myself at the same time the stuff that i'm interested in i say i sort of tend to sort of um draw upon and give back out some way yeah yeah and talking about sort of historic figures so you made a three minute animation for was it the 2005 black history month um looking at the historic figure uh, mary seacole as part of the black history month celebrations in 2005 We have to get these men to a hospital or they'll die here. We need a doctor, a nurse. I saw one on the battlefield. I'll get her. Cholera. I've seen this before in Jamaica. But, but you're black. You sound like an, the, the enemy. My name is Mary Seacole. And I am no one's enemy. And it's broadcast on Channel 4, BBC 2, S4C. What does Black History Month mean to you personally and how important is it for future generations, you know, particularly of young people growing up now, you know, either in sort of urban communities or even, you know, in sort of more sheltered valleys communities where there might not be as much diversity? How important is it for these stories to keep getting told and heard? All the stories, I, I think, like uh, are so important. Um, oral history and um, family history and things like that. Sort of the and the history I'm interested in at the moment is is history that wouldn't be written down. It's sort yeah. of really sort of uh, local history, and I suppose like um, it's a weird one for me. Black history, although like I've always appreciated it because as a kid I sort of uh, got the extra education about it. I sort of um, feel so targeted by uh, the the whole sort of um, uh, black history, if you like, I, I would like to maybe have Chinese History Month and a Jewish yeah. History Month, and, and include it, and 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 then I wouldn't, it wouldn't feel so Black History Month. I th- I've got a bigger thing about Black History, obviously. Yeah. And and being mixed race, it puts me in a position where I, I can tend, I tend to see both sides of the coin. I'd like to like to call it, and um, I, I can see sort of the vices within, say, Black History Month, um, working. With two handed, let's say. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a double edged shot sold to me. Yeah. You recently brought, the, you know, the, the history of the, the race riots, Cardiff's race riots, uh, 1919 into the 21st century, sort of via a, a digital graphic uh, novel called Cardiff 1990 Riots Redrawn. When did you first become aware of this part of Wales's, you know, well, almost shameful history, really? Something that's not often shouted about. And how did you turn that kind of knowledge into what became this project? In the front room, PC James Birch says he saw a gang of white men around Mohammed Abdullah, who was already lying unconscious on the floor with bloodstains on his head. PC Frank Lamborn later says that he saw a man whom he could not identify strike Abdullah on the head with the leg of a table, which had been chopped off whilst the man was laying on the ground. As the officers climbed the stairs, Muhammad Ali fired several times. Fortunately, and maybe on purpose, his aim wasn't good. His first bullet passed through PC Ernest May's helmet, a second went through PC Brotherton's cape. In a desperate struggle, Ali dropped the gun. He was overpowered and carried into the street. At some point, Brotherton hit him in the right eye with his left fist. Ali's right eye and cheekbone were so swollen that he probably can't see. Also taken into custody are Saeed bin Saeed, 21, and Mohammed Sharif, 24, were charged. Again, um, like people like my grandfather, my father was always telling me about the riots um, from going to college, university, thinking of like local stories. It was popping up a lot, and there was never any sort of. Um, there's no, there's no book on it still to this day. Um, there's only sort of transcripts from the newspaper, and um, it was something I've always wanted to do, make a film about it, and I couldn't get the information. So uh, when National Theatre Wales sort of um, introduced me to Mike Pearson, who'd sort of done a three-year research throughout um, looking for the newspapers to sort of get a timeline and a, a scholarly sort of structure to these riots. 
was the first sort of um, evidence or facts I've ever I ever heard about the riots. And again, like um, rather than it being Black History, I, I thought like Black History is history. So mm. rather than uh, I suppose it coming out as a, a Black History thing, it was sort of like um, accidental. Like I, I've been working on a project for three years, so like the Black Lives Matter and all that at the time, and it coming out was a bit mad. But um, yeah, I, I'm just interested in in um, provocative history, if you like. I suppose uh, hidden history. Mm like picking as an artist picking topics that um not so much taboo but that people find difficult to discuss like a like race yeah is is something that has always affected me and it certainly affected my art so it has become a topic um whether i like it liked it or not within yeah history yeah sort of unavoidable i guess just given what, what you've just said there the, na- the nature of the beast is that a uh, I sort of only get employed for telling black stories. Whereas like um, one of my first animations I sort of tried to do, I drew a, a bronze statue of Jim Driscoll, which is yeah. like at the end of my road, Butte Road, and he's a massive uh, boxer, could have been a heavyweight champion of the world. But he decided to stay in Cardiff and fight for the nurses for charity. Mm-hmm. And um, for that, he, he held the respect of Cardiff and he's called Peerless Jim. So I've always liked this story. Again, my grandfather used to tell me about him. He had the biggest funeral in Cardiff. And um, my story was um, that I, I asked my grandfather in the car as a, a child, who is he, who's Jim? And um, we drive off and the traffic light hits the bronze statue, goes to green. And uh, Jim sort of turns his head, the statue, and uh, acknowledges the question and um, jumps off the podium and jogs around Cardiff and all the statues of Cardiff around the, um, I don't know, we got some brilliant architecture around Cardiff and the, the, a lot of like the statues, people don't know who they are. So I sort of went around and um, found out who the, they were, like the Marcus Booth family and the Kitchener and all these sort of people. And um, they, they sort of dobbed their hat to, uh, to um, Peerless Jim as he jogs past. And uh, they bought this uh, idea, S4C. And um, when I, I drew more of the, uh, the artistry and sort of read the, the script, found out more about him, that he lived in Ely. He wasn't actually a docs person. His mother was from mm-hmm. New, Newport, uh, Newtown which is just over the, the road there. And it's an Irish community. So it's sort of really, really fresh history for me. I really enjoyed um, writing it. But when I found out that he was a, a white man, um, they asked me to change the idea. So I was always sort of up, up against these barriers where I sort of um, typecasted myself early, if you like, or I was typecasted for being yeah. a black artist and expected to draw black stories. So that sort of enforced my, um, my way of thinking then to tell educational stories rather than telling the, the stories I was expected to tell, like which is like the yeah. black stories or real ignorant stuff that um, he was expecting, really. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that people think of that as sort of positive discrimination. Ah, but we're telling these stories. But, um, yeah, you know, you... As a black it, guy telling it, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's just funny, you know, as a, as a gay woman that a, a lot of, projects people approach me with involve lgbt history month you know and that sort of thing which is great and yes the exposure is you know i'd never you know turn it down necessarily but yeah you kind of want to be recognized for you know more than that exactly i think like um like i said it's a double-edged sword because um since this black lives matter thing i've I've never been so busy um Mm. with with like with projects with sort of um I don't know, uh, National Health, for example, doing characters for them and yeah. um, the Millennium Centre and um, just people that sort of would have overlooked me, I think, before. Mm. And talking about, you know, history lessons and kind of delving into your own past, uh, you've done a lot of work in which Tiger Bay has featured. Is that, I mean, you've sort of already answered it before, I think, but do you think that's by design or is it accidental just because you are interested in that part of history? Um, it's a bit of a necessity. And also, like uh, like I said, the people that surround me within Bhutan are rich with stories and talent. Um, so I've only sort of got to step out my door to, to get an idea or, or to meet somebody uh, who, who's, who's doing something interesting. So like, as a filmmaker, there was always that. And um, like, like I said, there's loads of talented people. So we, as a kid, we was break dancing, rapping, singing or whatever. So there's still that vibe. 
within uh, our culture down there. That sort of always inspired me. But um, yeah, I think like um, again, um, I've been able to make uh, uh, my work not solely about the bay, but having that interest coming from you and then and the interest from outside Cardiff for like Tiger Base history. Uh, one of the reasons I set up uh, the company was because we, as a, as a, you know, from a young child, we sort of always seen people coming in with art groups and um, sort of giving us ideas or, or getting like big budgets and coming in at the last minute and employing the community to sort of do these projects. So I sort of seen that as an opportunity to sort of do our own projects, tell our own stories. And um, I thought that was important and it's sort of it, it grown more so over the years, the last 20 years, in fact, where um, my stories are sort of, I don't know, not on their feet, but definitely like um, it's not so much by accident no more. Uh, my mind sort of is is thinking about the history of the Bay constantly and um, mm. I, I suppose twisting it into uh, the artistry that I do with the rats and things like that is trying to make the fantasy out of it more like um, like. I don't know, we got a very romantic sort of uh, view of Tiger Bay. Mm. And um, as a local person, there's a, a reality to that and there's a romance to it. So, uh, yeah, I suppose I've got a lot to draw on. Yeah. Dustin, you've mentioned uh, the rats there. Can you tell us about your uh, 2012 play that was inspired by Rat Island and how that came about? <laughs> this way, smells like there's food in here. Fortune and glory. Is it safe? We've come so far from our home. I don't like this. We will show you how it's done, little bro. It's time to look after our futures. Mox, you stay by here. I keep a watch on the exits in case anybody comes. If he sees anybody, you can give us a shout. Or at the right? What the rass is an exit? What the hell's that? That big fucking bright sign on the door above your head. It says exit, so people can come in and go out. Can you see it? Can we? Can you? Mm, well, not exactly. Why? Is it important? What the raps are those girls uh, teaching you? Like, again, uh, as a kid, we would um, have gangs. This is primary school, and there was <laughs> Newtown rats, and there was the Grange Cavern cats. And like within the school, we sort of like uh, have these little scrap gangs and sort of like just as nothing really, but it sort of stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, and that was like we was in a, a primary school that we used to be round about where Rat Island used to be. And um, I suppose it'd be, it was called Rat Island from the pirate days uh, up until like, um, what's it called? Uh, anyway, I'm not, sure. I'm not sure. It's sort of like, it, it's one of them things that, I don't know whether it was officially called Rat Island, but okay, yeah. in a lot of li literature from a, a, a certain age, uh, era, this end of the dock was called uh, Rat Island. And, um, like I said, I was making a lot of romantic stories about the Bay and uh, the facts, the history and stuff. And really my imagination for as an animator um, is, is no one I've ever seen because I'm constantly doing these historical project projects and uh, I'm sort of, sort of more of a sci-fi mind. And um, the rats was something that I, I was able to, to sort of, um, I suppose, express myself without having to, to use race and stuff so by using animals um mm. i was able to talk about the community um in an anagraphical tale where we're actually talking about um the appropriation of butan and um the development redevelopment uh, over four generations and stuff and um the rats are actually uh, based on my friends which like um like i said rather than telling a romantic story we tell a grimy story so it's all mm. about um the poverty, if you like, and the hardship of um, of a rat, and um, it sort of grew from there. Uh, it became about my employment. So the rats, the rat goes out looking for her name, and she got to steal something from the humans, which will give her identity and like, also give her uh, a power and purpose. And um, they go over to the Millennium Center where they meet. They bump into some other rats, which are like secret society rats, which are going to blow up the the, the bay. They've um, found a bomb that hasn't uh, detonated since World War II and uh, I've been trying to blow it up ever since. So I sort of mix local history within it because um, as, a, as a child within our school, we knew that there were bombs all down Dunbar's Road that didn't explode and um, our school was actually evacuated. So our teacher used to tell us stories like that. 
So again, uh, it's just stories that were in my mind from a, a child. I was able to sort of amalgamate into these, um, I suppose the history I've learned by doing the other projects and uh, the characters I, I meet on the street, my friends and the sort of outlandish stories I hear. Uh, I was able to sort of put them into the characters of the rats. And um, yeah, I enjoyed writing the rats. I still haven't finished the process of them looking to make an animation of it still. Yeah. So I sort of written an animation and um, National Theatre Wales sort of come to to, uh, to my community looking for talent. And I sort of got involved in uh, the theatre world and um, decided to turn the rats into a, a theatre piece. Yeah. By, by making the masks and actually getting my friends to perform their lines. And um, yeah, it turned out like a, a, to be a brilliant journey where I, um, I've learned so much more about directing. Um, just the, the whole experience, I suppose, of, of making the rats over the last five to six years since the, the genesis of the idea. Um, again, it's been crazy to sort of um, uh, put me on, on track to, to sort of where I want to be with making a feature film, if you like. Yeah. Um, so the rats was something that I thought would be simple and quick for me to do. And if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't be able to do my feature, which is so much more complicated. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, the rats sort of turned out to be a, a, a real good journey where I was able to sort of um, travel with it and actually see the effect that stories have on people, um, specifically as a, a director watching the actors and, and, and giving, finding the legs within the, um, the story by performing it and, and seeing like a, the joy I get from it. Yeah, it makes me want to do things like that more, definitely. And I think I think like... Um, I've missed out on a lot by uh, by taking so long to do mm -hmm. one story like that because it sort of involves so much of my life sort of within it. It's not like um, stories I'm writing now, which is sort of like just just stories. The, yeah. the, them, that story sort of grows with you. So I've got a couple of stories like that, which um, are on the back burner or sort of, a, yeah, so you've got to have a project to sort of be thinking about to sort yeah. of motivate you anyway and to practice these sort of... Uh, crazy ideas you get <laughs> so the rats was one of them and you used a lot of uh sort of local talent welsh musicians um music featured within how, how was that as a collaborative process was it sort of hand-picked by you were they like musicians you knew or sure yeah uh, I, I i work in a creative space um the royal Stuart lane D uh, douglas buildings and um the super furry animals are my neighbor uh so i've been lucky enough to sort of been surrounded by musicians for the last 10 years and um yeah i get involved in their, their music trying to make music videos jumping on their, their uh, albums trying to rap and everything as much as i can so uh, when the opportunity came up for me to actually uh do a score for for my uh my project dav the drummer like i've got a good relationship with him um was able to sort of go around and collect these uh eclectic sounds like really from around the base so we, we collected like boat noises uh the sound of the dock and um, these steel girders and we really tried to make an organic sound for the rats and um dad put his rock and roll stamp on it then it was a uh, very good for the rest of history <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you now about your um your 2011 uh, short film, 10 minute live animation, sorry, for BBC Three, was it? Which you won a Welsh BAFTA for. 
best short film how, how did that come about what was the inspiration and you know is that is that like your sort of most proud accomplishment to date or uh, no that, that's more my friend's project Gavin Porter's um right uh sort of directed that it was for it's my shout uh yeah. Welsh um I, I suppose initiative to take on directors and writers and um Gavin was doing his first directing um I, I suppose it was called Sweet 16 and um asked me to to help him on the the visuals and um I I did some 2D drawings animations for it and uh, yeah we was lucky enough to sort of raise the bar I think with the, the entries that was going in there because yeah, we, we were very shocked ourselves mm-hmm. that it sort of continued and, and got a, bat, a Welsh BAFTA. Yeah <laughs> amazing um so this podcast Mouth Off is um well we feature a lot of stories about marginalized issues so it's either you know episodes about or by marginalized groups talking about I don't know, I don't like the phrase taboo, but, you know, topics that maybe aren't often spoken about. So we've had, you know, a disabled playwright on talking about the visibility of disabled actors in mainstream, you know, and whether or not it is right that um, non-disabled actors are getting cast above disabled actors to play a disabled role and that kind of thing. And we're also talking about topics like uh, cyberbullying, homophobia, disabilism racism lots of different isms <laughs> yeah. now i mean you've kind of already answered this yourself you don't really consider yourself a marginalized person however how important do you think it is not just your own I, I, stories, i'm sure but... i do uh, even if i if i didn't I, i'd be deluded i think um yeah it, it, like i said it's something that definitely have affected um the amount of work i produce and the work that i am producing so yeah um, yeah, I suppose um, I use it to my benefit. Like I think I always have. Um, like uh, coming from the bay mm. and and going outside the school um, to Rada, I sort of was equipped with um, lucky enough to sort of deal with racism from a young age. Um, being yeah. like I said, being from the bay, we were, we were educated and proud of who we were, and um, I didn't realize that, that I was mixed or like people. Yeah, I thought like there was only black and white. I mean, it's sort of a, the way it was taught. My mother's a white lady who sort of was writing letters to Desmond Tutu to, um, because we had a big sort of a black alliance down here uh, in the 70s and 80s where we'd march for apartheid and things. So I grew up in that era where I was constantly making banners and, mm. and um, marching and stuff. So like I said, we was, we was, at, we was informed and going outside of Bhutan to school. I, I seen the sort of extent of racism and um, yeah, the the indifference I felt. Uh, I suppose you carry with you uh, uh, mm. to, as an adult, and that sort of serves you to to identify where these things are happening. And, and um, yeah, um, unfortunately, it sort of uh, reared his head um, yeah. the last couple of years, and I've, uh, I've made people feel like it is the seventies or something again. For, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think um, stories and art is is the way to um, make or an easier way to to open these these subjects and certainly to sort of make people realize that we are all human at the end of the day, trying to um, live a life and express ourselves the same way. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it seems really, really, um, I don't know, a crazy thing racism to be talking about in the modern day. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think? I mean, what has been, for you professionally then, has, well, you've just said you've got a lot of work, particularly in the last, you know, last year or so. So what other barriers do you think that you have kind of hit within the field of the creativity, um, you know, to stop you? I mean, it sounds like you've done very well, so maybe you haven't hit too many barriers, but what has been your the biggest barrier to your creativity? The, the, I suppose the barriers are the gatekeepers. So I'm sort of, uh, being honest, like uh, you kept it at a level where you're creative. Uh, certainly from a young age, if I, I've always been this creative and itching to make films and stuff like that, but never sort of been given the creative key to to, to do what I want, whether that's because uh, of my race or because of the, the stories I'm telling. But I think it's definitely like the influence I would be able to give with my films. So um, all the people I would employ uh, has been a factor. Um, so, yeah, I, I 
<laughs> to know is had because as well I, i'm from a generation that i've had to deal with it like i was told that to, if i want to succeed knowing racism is out there to do twice as much or be twice as, as good or whatever pull your bootstraps yeah. up sort of attitude my parents had and um deal with it so like when whilst whilst i was in university um i went through racism uh with the, the classmates who would write stuff on the register like kyle's never here and um just sort of blatantly single me out and uh the teacher sort of wouldn't see my work um mm -hmm. in my foundation and i had to get him in trouble uh because i, I literally he wasn't letting me on further onto my next course and um, yeah. I was, i'm very sort of placid so I, I and i had to be sort of like i said i'm from a generation of sort of i, I, I suppose you've got to play the game and in university i was sort of that and because i wasn't hanging around with these kids they sort of took it on themselves to sort of single me out and then the teacher sort of was sort of joining in on that and um i i, I couldn't take that because they were stopping me progressing mm. in onto my next year which was my uh, animation course um so i sort of went to the students union and um asked for some advice on this teacher who was sort of like saying i'm not allowed on the next year uh, because of some work i ha he hadn't seen or whatever and i had showed him the work he hadn't mm. marked it and um my work like i've always been talented um so I wasn't the most talented in the class because it was all artists, but like it was foundation, everybody was going on to different fields. And um, I was certainly like um, talented within my, my my field of animation and ideas. And I felt mm -hmm. that he was putting a stop to that out of like some really sinister jealousy or whatever, and could mm -hmm. have really hurt my career and my, uh, my motivation of where I was going at the time. And lucky enough, like I said, I went to the Students Union and they had a, an advisor, which is, I'll never forget his name. His name was Winrow Brown. And uh, he happened to be a, a massive black guy who just sort of finished a, a course in America. And he, he explained that like um, white people don't really ex understand black people's body language. They think so, they call us lazy because we're relaxed and all this. So he went through a whole thing with me. And uh, when I seen the teacher and the teacher was awfully apologetic after that. And um, for the next three years, he was really apologetic so it showed that uh i suppose his turnaround and the fact that he's maybe seen that he could have ruined my my bloody life and uh for no reason other than that the, the, the kids maybe the, the other children or the children he's been result of 20 these other yeah. people wasn't sort of accepting me in the class and i, I felt away from him like, i had to go away to college from my community or whatever so it was sort of it was a weird one and again, like the industry mirrors that. So when I had my first job, um, encounters with people who were working in the building, coming coming down the stairs, past me singing, I shot the sheriff. And mm. you, get, you get a lot yeah. of things that, that are sort of very subdued racism that you've got to sort of let, let slide. But like if I, I didn't, I wouldn't have got this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about the arts as a, as a wider, um, you know, sort of encapsulating all of it, I guess. Um, certain fields in the arts have a reputation for being quite elitist. I think you're mainly like theatre, probably more so mainstream theatre, but it, it's definitely there. Um, what advice would you give to, you know, someone from maybe a sort of, you know, more deprived area or, you know, working class background or just feeling marginalised from the industry in general that might think, you know, their socio or cultural or economic backgrounds might be a barrier to them, you know, going to drama school or going to university and studying film or whatever they think they need to do in order to... You know, yeah, no, that, that's that's me. Um, I, I'm dyslexic, so I wanted to write films and I, like the difficulty I've had to sort of to, to sort of challenges to over I've had to overcome and still sort of do or whatever struggle with um you just got to do it I think all the more so like if uh, with especially with theatre I thought it wasn't for me and always sort of stayed away that like growing up and now being a filmmaker or a, a storyteller makes me want to bang in them doors even more and and, mm. and these are the people who are supposed to be looking for these stories are supposed to be like um what are they called like um i don't know liberal people who, who, who are interested in fixing the world yeah and certainly that's what I've, i found in theater is that this audience there's an audience there who are interested in change and um uh, even though they I, I suppose there's an audience who like i always say like, who can afford to go mm -hmm. to a show after work and 
and yeah. mingle and and taking I don't know some deep story about war poverty refugees and then go back to their lives so it's a double-edged sword with me as well with that but they definitely need the education that where what you're saying we have that that they're, they're denying a saying or even our story being told within these spaces so like um me taking over the millennium center with my rats and telling them i'm going to blow it up <laughs> it was a sort of a statement that um <laughs> that sort of just i don't know i felt that it was funny to say so like um <laughs> Uh, we wrote a song called "There's a Bomb in the Docks from World War Two, and no one knew quite what to do. Uh, call the lawyers, call the I don't know. Go, but it goes on to like we're we're gonna blow up the mermaid key. <laughs> we are the keepers of this city, and um, the day we we performed it, I think three times, like um, as sort of run throughs, and every time we did it, the, um, there was a massive event happening in Cardiff, in in the Millennium Center, or right thereabouts. So the first time Obama was coming to Cardiff Bay and um because I had um bombs in my plate they asked me like we didn't know <laughs> when I booked it this was going to happen it's just serendipity I think like probably yeah. <laughs> uh, this is another thing that makes me think I should get into political uh, make my things a bit more political because they're, they're funny political I think but I really should have something more to say within a harass and uh, I think everybody expected me to be saying this sort of political thing but it was a a bit of a joke about like the terrorism and stuff like things mm-hmm. that was going on like i said obama come down and they they, they made me take out um all the the literature of the the play that's sort of related to to bombs with detonation explosion and i couldn't <laughs> say it all in the play which i thought was funny um and we had this little bomb made out of like a mobile phone and a, mm-hmm. a bike light so flash and the, the, it was a prop and uh, they came and took that off us it was like who built this <laughs> wanted, wanted to see me about building bombs and they took it to the police station until an hour before the performance every day um, <laughs> yeah, pick it up. and we had like it was it was so I, the, the making of the rats would have been like the spinal tap yeah of my, of my films <laughs> like, it was brilliant and we, we had 24 police come to the show and we had armed guards on us because we went outside and um yeah it was crazy it, it was brilliant and uh yeah at the same time, like I said, it inspired me to 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 want to say more. Uh, mm. Actually, if they're that scared of of what people got to say on a level where I'm I'm running around with furry hats on at yeah. that point and um lycra suits and and yeah, but it was just taking it to Mick. But like uh, the, the the high security that the country was going in into, I, I sort of realised how my how poignant my story was, and um yeah, sort of set me on another journey to um to tackle that. Yeah. So is that is that something that might feature in future work? Work in the the planning? It's my, I'm turning into animation. I still want to make my feature yeah. of it. I've, I've um I've only done like an hour and a half performance of the rats where I've written written these songs and um yeah I want to I, I want to get it out definitively like as an animation yeah. I think and um yeah it, it, it's definitely sort of grown from the the first sort of initial idea which was um just me and my friends rapping. I said to, to my friends, you get your your rats, I get my rats, and we meet by the flats and make it collapse, perhaps, or something like that. <laughs> so it was about these uh, terrorist rats. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the interview. Yeah. So to finish up, I usually ask um, a guest coming on to think of, you know, two or three songs that they have felt has impacted them you know, on a personal level, could be something recent, it could be something you've written yourself, or it could be, you know, an oldie from childhood. So have you managed to think of any? Um, I, I, I haven't. I'm sort of more influenced by artists. So yeah. I, I sort of thought of like um, songs, them artists then that have influenced me, I suppose, mm-hmm. throughout the years and yeah, uh, um, different genres. So um, Gil Scott Heron would be my first artist. Um, yeah. His song, Pieces of a Man, pops into my head, I suppose. Jagged jigsaw pieces Tossed about the room I 
saw my grandma sweeping with her old straw broom, but she didn't know what she was doing. She could hardly understand. She was really sweeping up pieces of a man. I was torn between that and uh, a revolution will not be televised. You will not be able to stay home, brother. able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. Then my second artist is Keres one. And again, it's just a catalogue of, of, of songs that have influenced me. I couldn't choose one. Um... The beat was also drop right there. Yeah. <laughs> and that third one, it, it just killed me. I was like, oh, I'm really torn. <laughs> so, best song, I, my best hip hop song is Master Ace. These yeah. are the people of my neighborhood. So, I'll have to give it to that. <laughs> okay, that's brilliant. Ready, go, ready, go. With the people be living kind of low. So, you better not, you better not slow. Or you might catch the BO. These are the people in my neighborhood. These are the people in my hood. These are the people in my neighborhood. And most of them are up to no good. Let's take a walk through my hood. With that phrase, it's all good. Don't apply, although I wish it could. The thickness of shit is real. Come and get a feel of the raw deal. See that nigga running with the steel? Well, his name is KK, and back in the day, he was a star running back. Plus, he ran track. He could have been the next Walter Payton, but waiting. Watch him go and stick that lady up and start skating. And see that sister with the weave down her back? That's Priscilla. And she be drinking Miller by the back. Her brother's name is June Bug. He caught a slug in his spine right here. Now he rolls a wheelchair. And there's Mrs. Robinson. Alright, and you, that's my man Mom. She makes the slamming beefs too. And there goes Joe Slim, who wears a green brim and drives a green Cadillac with the spare on the back. And that there's Zach. 
just to get his habits fed. And then there's Betty Bay who come out every day in house shoes and rollers, pushing the babies in the strollers. They go Petey who be all in the books. A's in every class, never had a piece of ass. Then we got the twins who's robbed the same bins, got the same tens and twenties in their pocket and the skins. He's sweating them, cause they know they got the double mint. And not the kind you chew, but I think you kinda knew. That's Tina Parker, much darker than the sis. That's because the mom's is a fucking snake kiss. Nobody in the family's dark except she and the UPS man with the long delivery. And Jesse, he's the neighborhood Cinderella. And when the fella be walking, you can tell her. Whole lot of sugars in this coffee. The softy be hitting off the heads fresh home from up north. G, that's Mr. Johnson and that's Mr. Thompson. Both of them are married, but not to each other. Watch how they smother each other with kisses, hugs, feels, and squeezes. Oh my sweet Jesus! These are the people from the get ready go. In other words, the ghetto, cream hominetto is much worse than it looks, and so is my hood. When no folks is up to no good. I will do definitely. Oh, cheers, Kyle. Thanks, thanks a lot. All right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Join us next time for a bonus feature called Making It on the Margins, where I interview singer, songwriter and producer Matt Costa. Well, on this last record, um, there's the song, the song Make That Change. I, I've had um, several friends who were dealing with substance abuse. And so that song... Um, yeah was inspired by um you know what what was inspired by by those trials um and and specifically i guess that's the most the most recent um yeah Yeah. 